Hey guys. Welcome back. Um, today I want to talk about pity. Um, I didn't really realize the role of pity in feeling sorry for someone in these situations and in these type of relationships. Um, I've been reading heavily on this lately and I think it's really important to understand. So um, I kind of want to go over some of that stuff today. Uh, there's a famous quote that says, if the devil existed, he'd want us to feel very, very sorry for him. So there's a psychologist and she's talking about the first time she'd assess someone on trial who had already been clinically identified as psychopathic. Um, and in her first interview with him, she asked him, what is most important to you in life? And his answer was, the thing I like best is when people feel sorry for me. Um, and that was kind of shocking for her. And honestly, it was kind of shocking for me too. I was like, hmm, that's an interesting answer. I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that would be the answer to that question coming from somebody like him. And then I thought, oh, maybe it's like a riddle. Is he just trying to fuck with her? But no, that's actually what he meant. So we're kind of going to talk about that and why. Um, so she talked about, you know, after 25 years of listening to clients and their reactions to trauma bonding with this type of um, personality or abusive behaviors, you know, now I get it. Um, so this was like a big light bulb thing for her. So she says in the book, good people let pathetic people get away with murder. All right. So we're going to go into how they use pity to kind of seduce us or trick us into this chain of events after a bad incident um, or they hurt you that goes downhill very quickly. When I was reading this, I looked back at my relationship after listening and just thought, Jesus, if I had only understood this the first time he cheated on me, uh, I would have saved myself like a lot of time <laughs> in this situation. Um, so pity and feeling sorry for someone overrides us noticing they do not feel sorry for what they have done. I think that's how they hide, that they have no remorse. Right. And the first time he did something to me, I had a very strong feeling that he didn't feel sorry about it. Um, even though he was putting on the act and crying and this and that, you know, I did have a gut feeling like, oh, I he like, I don't know why, like he's acting like a person would that feels sorry, but I just don't feel like he's sorry. And I actually wrote him a letter telling him so. And then he kind of laid it on super duper thick. Um, and I was real vulnerable in that letter, and so I think that gave him a lot of things to work with to kind of further do this to me. Um, but, you know, this is kind of how they do that. And unless you are, like, particularly aware of it, um, which I was at a certain point, you know, I was. And he was still able to evoke pity in me feeling sorry for him some of the time. Um when they commit an act that hurts someone else and they throw the pity act into play, this is the very thing, um, you know, the sense of feeling sorry for them that makes us think that they do feel bad for what they have done. But actually, it's them getting us to feel bad for them. So they don't feel bad at all. 
they are just extremely good at acting like it, thus leaving the fact that you're hurt in the background, um, and now them and feeling sorry for them is in the spotlight. So this is kind of what I call the emotional cyclone syndrome. Like I say, he cycloned me when I talk about this stuff now. So I'll give you an example. Okay, he cheats. By the end of it, I'm not even remembering he's hurt me. Center stage is he's hurt because I'm leaving him and he can't live without me. He'll have to live without me and that will be miserable for him and how could I break his heart like that? Me not noticing the fact that I'll be in a relationship with someone, continuing to build an attachment to someone and continue to love someone who has deeply wounded me with no regard. And I will be miserable trying to ignore what he has done, stuff it down, and what it has done to me, you know, is like a huge issue. So, I don't know, like, like learning all of this just really like gave me an aha moment. Um, I guess, I guess this is the point, the first point in the relationship with he and I where like my feelings and my mental health became unimportant because his is more important because of this pity act that he was putting on. So it's like a cloak of pity came over me. So I gave him a second chance. And during the second chance, he was good to me for a while. I didn't feel like I was being abused during this time. However, even in the times he was nicest to me, you know, a good quote unquote, good quote unquote boyfriend, the background noise, you know, the wound was continuing to fester because I wasn't doing anything to take care of it. I was neglecting it and it continued to grow. Um, And I was ignoring the fact that I was hurt and needed to heal. I was neglecting myself. So pity is how they bring upon the behavior of neglecting yourself. And it becomes so ingrained in your everyday life by the end of it, you won't even recognize yourself anymore. I know I did not. I mean, I was, it started with that. And by the end of it, in the bad of the bad, like I was neglecting myself to the point where I wasn't even like feeding myself. I wasn't, it was just terrible. So think of it this way. A piece of sharp broken glass cuts you open, but you feel more focused on the vase that has shattered everywhere on the floor and feel the need to clean that mess up more than you do about your flesh that's been cut open and is bleeding everywhere. The broken vase on the floor is more important. You're more concerned about putting the broken pieces of something cold and hard with no conscience back together again, rather than the fact that you are bleeding out. So I just bled out while trying to fix him after he hurt me. That's kind of the metaphor I came up with, right? Because we're so hyper-focused on trying to fix them so that they treat us better, so that we can stay with them and have like this happily ever after thing that we're working towards, right? The honeymoon phase that they gave us in the beginning. Uh, You know, and I think like, that part just goes back to the idea of he must have hurt me because someone broke him into a million pieces before me so it's not his fault and I feel bad for him or at least that's you know what I thought at the time which is pity right so I'm not so sure now the difference is in this 
you know, illustration that I kind of use with the glass is that the piece of glass you cut yourself on didn't do it on purpose. It was an accident, okay? Your abuser didn't hurt you on accident. He may be broken. He might have his own trauma, but he doesn't feel bad that you're bleeding and that's a problem. And he knew he'd cut you deep before he stuck his sharp edge into you. Right? Like a lot of this stuff is premeditated. I believe that that first cheating incident was very premeditated. Um, you know, and he did it anyways. Um, why do they do that? Why do they do things like that on purpose? They do it as to weaken you. Well, why? Because wounding you puts them in a position of power. Hurting someone gives you a certain level of power over them. Their entire world revolves around having power and control. That is the basis of this behavior. So people of good conscience don't register this as a mechanism to get what they want. Because we don't do that. They feel bad about hurting other people. People of good conscience, I mean. Um, so sociopathic people use it to suppress you. To decompensate you um, you know, like a body decompensates with disease, with a low immune system, right? And if you have a low immune system, then an infection can get you. So being emotionally wounded compromises you. It compromises your well-being. Um, and though you may have a pulse in this stage of a narcissistic or sociopathic relationship, you will hardly be able to uh, feel alive anymore, and you will feel weak and you know, it like weakens you to a point and then they just come in hot and they keep going for it and they keep going for it and they beat you down and they beat you down. So moral of the story is you must hold someone accountable if they have wounded you repeatedly, especially. They've watched you get sick from it, wither down to almost nothing. I did quite literally and not feel sick to their stomachs for doing so. If they do that and watch it and continue doing it, you are with someone with no conscience and you are with someone who is not safe. Okay? So, if you're identifying with what I'm saying, make a plan to understand, you know, when they are guilt tripping you and gaslighting you and how you're going to learn these things better. Begin to use your voice and let them know, you know, you've wounded me so much, I'm weak now. But I've noticed who's hurting who. And now I'm going to get strong, and I'm going to get smart, and I'm going to get out of this. All right? They're not going to like that, right, when you start to use your voice again. Um, you know, when this all starts to click, like what's going on, which I hope this podcast helps you with. But you'll see their true colors when you kind of start standing up to them even more so. Um, and it will make it harder for them to keep their cool, and be nice guy to keep you in the game, to keep you engaged, to keep fooling you. And most importantly, the more badass and confident you are in judging their character and finding it to be faulty, I mean, confident in that, right? Because it's gonna be harder to gaslight you because you know what's up now. So the more you're able to identify that faulty character and call them out, the more they begin to question themselves. They get nervous. They question their ability to keep you down, to keep you weak. Um, you know, so breathe your courage and strength onto them in these moments of this kind of conflict because when they begin to smell your courage instead of smelling your fear, they back the fuck off, right? 
Like, these people don't fuck with courage. Because they know they won't be able to beat it. They're scared of it. So, I said in another episode, remember, courage is the opponent to fear and consciouslessness. Someone who evokes a lot of pity out of you is as close to a label on one's forehead as you can have in identifying this type of person. A lot of people ask me, like, okay, how am I going to know if people are like this? Like, I don't want to be with someone like this again. How am I going to know? Okay, this is how you know. This is a big part of it. Sociopaths often display intense but brief interests. Okay, so things like hobbies, people, obsessions, um, they get really intense about things really fast, but it never lasts long. And it's not passion. It's, it's a fixation that they can control. So don't confuse the two, right? So this is not passion. This is control. And this is a hallmark, um, you know, of narcissism and, and sociopathy. There's, there's no commitment or follow-up. So I kind of, like, had some thoughts around, you know, like I'm thinking about all this as I'm listening to this audiobook on all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, like I can remember now like when this started happening to me and like how it got so out of control and how downhill it went and how I got to that like creepy stage. Cause that's always like been a thing for me. I'm like, how the hell did I stay with someone to the point where they're like creeping me out so badly and then I continue to stay with them. So like the creepy stage for me, the best way I could describe it is when someone doesn't care about you at all, like that, like your well-being, having them around you, like, so much on a regular basis in a relationship still, that, like, really sucks out the peace and joy from your life. It sucks out the safety. So, she used an example, um like a case study or whatever about a man who has these traits. Um, So she describes this scene. It's this man and it's his wife and it's his son. And they're by the pool. And this woman described her situation like after their divorce where the ex-husband like wouldn't leave her house. Like they were broken up you know, they were getting a divorce and he just like wouldn't move out or he'd leave, you know, when she threatened to call the police, but then he'd return, like nothing happened. Like he would like leave for a couple days and then he'd come back and just like, Hey honey, how are you? Like go take a shit in the bathroom and go take a nap in their bed. Like nothing's wrong when the police had just been called and like he was removed, you know? And she talks about how she did not confront this. Um, and she didn't really identify it as being odd or crossing a boundary because she wanted her son to feel like they were still somewhat a family unit so that's why she like didn't hold that boundary she wanted her son to feel normal um and she didn't want to want to like induce negative feelings about the dad so one day she asked him to leave and he got upset and he began to cry and just like cause this like pitiful scene and the woman talks about how she didn't feel any like empathy or sympathy for him anymore at this point right because he had abused her for so many years but their son did um and the dad knew it 
and the woman describing her situation said, I'll never forget this moment. It's when I knew for sure. When her son looked up at her dad and said, poor daddy, do we have to make him leave? Even though um, the son had been saying for months and months, like, that he didn't want daddy around so much anymore because he's mean and he yells and this and that and didn't really like him very much. But because the dad was able to evoke the opposite emotion from the child through pity, you know, the child's behaving and going in another direction to compensate the dad's feelings because he feels bad for him, right? So the woman said, I watched this happen and then he looked at me with this creepy gaze And, like, she's, like, he was staring at me, like, laser beams were shooting out of his eyes at me. And it was creepy. So that was, like, her aha moment. And I so related to that. It's just, like, oh, my God. Like, what am I dealing with? Um, I talked about it in a previous episode more in length. But mine was when he smiled and said, you know, your car can get stolen like that when he saw my keys in the center console of my car and knew that I had left them there in case I had to run away from him, right? That's all he had to say. And he looked at me and smiled. So what causes this sensation? What, what causes that hair to stand up on the back of your neck? Because you can sense their sense of accomplishment from creating control over you through fear when they're able to creep you out like that. So when shit gets creepy, this is when they have the most control because you're frozen in fear. Um, That was not a comfortable phase for me. (laughs) So if this is where you're at and this is the stage that you're in, I wanted to share this information with you because I think it's really helpful to kind of get yourself out of it. And my advice to you is to get as much alone time as possible, right? Which can be challenging when they're so controlling, they're isolating you, they're monitoring, um, you know, your computer use and phones even sometimes. So, you know, use like the, um, the features that we have now where like, it doesn't track your history, things like that. Use a friend's computer. Um, but I just want you to learn as much as you can about them and how they operate and how abuse works and why they behave the way they do because this is how you will first of all fall the fuck out of love with them because you're just like ew you know and there's cognitive dissonance right like there was a lot of times where I was like balls deep in an article or like watching a lecture or like watching you know Dr. Romney or whoever and I was just like oh my god like I can't believe I'm still with this person or like you know but it's hard, right? Because you get away from that even just for a couple of hours and they're texting you and then you go in the other direction and you're back at square one. So it just takes a lot of work. But learning about this stuff and educating yourself on how they operate is really helpful. And this is how you will overcome that fear that you're in and gain some confidence back to get brave and make a plan. You know, know how to defend yourself in these type of arguments with them know how to, you know, if it's getting to a point where you need to get a restraining order or get police involved, it will help you know how to document emotional abuse effectively and describe it effectively. And this is how you'll know in your heart, most importantly, it's you. 
it's not me. You know, now I know it's not me. I'm not the crazy one. You are. Um, I think having that moment in a relationship like this is like day one of recovery. When you're finally able to see this stuff accurately and understand it and understand what is happening to you, there's so much guilt and responsibility that just falls off of your shoulders and there's just like this release of emotion. I mean, when I had this moment, I had it in my bedroom. I will like never forget it. I just cried. I just I cried out loud. It's not me. It's him. Um, you know, because I was just so beat down with him telling me that, you know, I make all these problems and I'm the reason that we're having so many problems and, you know, he just ripped me apart. He made me feel like I was an awful person. I mean, he quite literally would tell me, you treat me like shit. You treat me so terribly. Um, we were on a camping trip one time and he said to me, I feel like you're abusive. And I was just like, I'm not though. Like I told him, I was just like, I'm not. And please don't call me that. Like I had abusive parents. That's really hurtful to me. You know, I'm not abusive. Um, and I kind of threw it back at him. I was just like, you know, I don't, I don't really know like a lot about that stuff, but I would say that like, sometimes I feel like you are abusive. Um, so, but that, I remember after that conversation, especially like it really got heavy for me and I really started to question myself like, okay, am I the bad guy here? You know, am I really treating him this way? Is this really me? Um, anytime he would, you know, say something shitty to me or do something shitty to me and I got mad or upset or had any type of normal negative emotion to a hurtful act or conversation, I would question it and I would beat myself up and start to say to myself, you know, why are you getting mad? Why are you getting sad over this? You shouldn't be doing that. Right? So I think that's kind of also like a big part in the growth of that negative inner voice and you're not trusting yourself anymore in not knowing how to be okay and comfortable with having emotional reactions to things and feeling bad for them all the time. Um, it's just a really vulnerable place to be in. So I hope that that was helpful. Um, I hope that that helps you, you know, gain some insight and kind of get the motivation to learn a little bit more about this stuff because um, it does help. All right, guys, much love. Till next time.